The Neurodivergent Woman podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. Hi, I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Libok, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Michelle and I met at work and bonded over a shared love of feminism and yoga. We both saw the need to provide a free resource to adult neurodivergent women. And so the Neurodivergent Woman podcast was born. Michelle is neurotypical. And Monique is neurodivergent. And we bring our clinical expertise and lived experience to the topics we explore. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. This week, we interview Sandhya Menon. She is an autistic ADHD pediatric psychologist and author. She was born in Singapore and is of Indian Swiss heritage. Sandhya moved to Nam or Melbourne in Australia after high school, where she lives and works today. Sandhya has written the book, The Brain Forest, to help children understand neurodiversity and inclusive practice. Her upcoming book, The Rainbow Brain, is the first children's book of its kind to outline both autism and ADHD in one person. Sanja is a sought-after speaker at autism conferences and has spoken at Reframing Autism, Autism from the Inside Out and Yellow Ladybugs. Understanding intersectionality is an important part of her work committing herself to the pursuit of anti-racist, neurodiversity-affirming and queer-inclusive education and acknowledging that it's a process and a journey. We're really excited to have on the podcast today, Sandhya Menon. So, Sandhya, can you tell us what does neurodivergence mean to you? Monique and Michelle for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, I guess neurodivergence to me just means being different. You know, that's really what divergent is. That's statistically different from the norm. And I'm huge into statistics. (laughs) Can't even say it, but I love it. (laughs) Um, I used to always think I was an alien. So neurodivergent and identifying as a neurodivergent woman, to me, that means community. So when I say that I'm neurodivergent and proud of it, I actually mean I found my place where I belong. I found my coming home. I know my place and I know the rules here. Yeah, I think that having a sense of belonging to a community is so important, you know, for anyone's well-being and really feeling that connection to others that you feel you have um, like that similarity and belonging to just so important. So we know that you're a psychologist, but you're also an educational and developmental psychologist. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and how that's actually different to a general psychologist or what someone might think of when they hear the word psychologist? Good question. That is very much a question that the community asks me all the time. (laughs) So all psychologists, when they get their registration, they start out as generalists. So they would have done six years of study and that could be a combination of 
a four-year university degree and two years of placements or just six years at university with placements in there. So everyone after that six-year sequence start out as generalists no matter what your area of study was. They can then do a further two years of practice of regular supervision, reflection and case study and submitting that to APRA to apply for endorsement in their field of study. So, you know, when you see a psychologist with those additional names, so either clinical psychologist or a sports psychologist or educational and developmental psychologist, it means that they've done those extra two years. So for me, I did my master's in education and developmental psychology. So that was my area of endorsement after the two-year period. So um, educational generally means that we can work in schools, but developmental means that you can work across the lifespan. So for me, I knew that I was really wanting to work with early childhood. So the developmental and educational side of that appeal to me. But equally, developmental psychologists can work with adults and with the ageing population too. So it sounds like it's really a focus on, and, and please correct me if this is, is incorrect, um, but it sounds like it's really a focus on actually the lifespan process. How would you phrase that as like where the focus is in terms of how the focus is different from, say, like a clinical psychologist? Yes. Yeah, so I I think for us, it's more about so the developmental side talks about the developmental stages and a focus on, you know, what's typical in this stage and what's atypical. So rather than simply, you know, what is atypical, it's more what is atypical for this developmental stage and helping people who see ask find out what works for them according to the life stage that they're at. So it is more, okay, so here's early childhood, here are your schooling years, what works for you in these years, you know, what's going to work for you in the workplace. Let's look at, you know, memory in the older populations. So there are a few things that we look at. Yeah, and educational and developmental psychologists tend to do a lot of testing as well, different types of testing and assessment of kids, um, people of different ages. That's right. So we do a lot of cognitive assessments to try and understand you know, how someone's brain really thinks, where their strengths, their challenges are, so we can identify how to support them better. Um, we also do a lot of developmental assessments, so assessing for developmental disabilities like autism and ADHD, um, but also intellectual disability, giftedness, those are all um, things that we do quite routinely. So, Sanja, you're also an author. Can you tell us about your book, The Brain Forest? Absolutely. I'm still getting my head around being called an author. <laughs> I'm always, you know, mother first, psychologist next, wife somewhere along the line, but author, <laughs> still getting used to that identity. So The Brain Forest is a book about neurodiversity. It is a book that is safe and gentle. So I wrote the story. Um, I guess the premise of the story is about a mum and her son going on a journey through the brain forest where the forest trees look like brains and they uncover different neurotypes along the way. So what this book is doing is gently exposing kids to the idea that people are different and the way they think and process are different. It talks about the things that kids can do that can be inclusive of people with different needs and it gives 
all kids' ideas for what they can do to meet their needs based on how their body feels. So I didn't want to write a book for diagnosed kids because not all kids are diagnosed. Um, So this way we can really well and truly meet our needs without maybe knowing our neurotype yet. I wrote it because we need more books like that, that don't talk about superpowers, that don't aren't just about autism or ADHD. It was so the brain forest covers autism, ADHD, intellectual disability, giftedness, all those things. And I wrote it specifically as a neurodivergent author. I love the framing of different brain types in the way that you have in the brain forest, which is firstly the analogy between our brains and nature right like biodiversity in nature um if you walk through a forest of course you see all different types of plants and trees and flowers and everything going on so firstly i think that's an amazing analogy and secondly i completely agree with you when you were talking there about needing a book that doesn't kind of center around a diagnosis or talk about superpowers or, you know, all these other things, because there's all these books out there that go one of two ways in a binary. Either it's like, here's how we fix this behavior in this child and how we help them be more neurotypical, essentially, or it's like this intense, almost toxic positivity that's like, your brain is amazing. This is your superpower, which is coming from a really good place, I think. And I think those types of books were introduced as a way to counteract the really negative, pejorative narratives that were there historically. But as Monique and I have talked before about uh, this on the podcast, I think a lot of that over-positivity can be quite invalidating and is also not totally accurate. You know, every single person's brain has strengths and weaknesses. doesn't matter who you are or what your brain type is. We all have strengths and weaknesses. We all have our own personal mountain to climb. And yeah, I just really love the presentation, the way that you've presented it in this book of just... Let's just walk through and see these very normal, different ways that a brain can be and all identify, ah, that's my brain there. Oh, cool. That's how I think about that thing and have it be normalized in a way that's sort of walking that middle ground. No, absolutely. You're exactly right in that that's what the brain was supposed to do. And I love the... I guess, comparison between neurodiversity and biodiversity is something that really made the concept ring true for me when I could make that link. So I'm glad that that does for lots of people. I know someone who actually messaged me one day and said, I identify as neurotypical, but I am sensitive to noise. And I don't feel like I can wear loops because that's a neurodivergent thing. And then we had to go back and talk about okay, well, here are some of your needs. You're struggling in this environment. It's okay to wear these loops to meet your needs. So moving away a little bit from that, this is what autistic people do and therefore I cannot use that, um, to this is something that my body needs. That is an amazing point. Um, And I'm so glad that you brought that up because I've had just kind of in my personal life, particularly since starting the podcast, um, people say a very similar thing, right? Where it's like, oh, I think that I'm, you know, or I identify as neurotypical or I identify as this or as that. 
but I'm also experiencing this trait or way of processing that is typically ascribed to a different neurotype. And often the thinking is, again, quite binary. It's like either that must mean that I am that other neurotype or that I can't have that thing. I can't have that way of processing. And again, this narrative in the brain forest around everyone's brain grows differently and we all have flavors of different things. Like I really relate to that person as well. (laughs) I'm neurotypical or that's how I identify, but I can, particularly when I'm stressed, get really hypersensitive to sounds. This morning is a perfect example. Had a little bit of a stressy evening and stressy morning. Walked into a cafe to get coffee. Lots of noise. Normally it would be fine. I felt like my brain was on fire. I had to immediately leave, which is not typical for me and is a really strong marker of my underlying kind of stress levels. Whereas I think the narrative that you know, you can only have sensory processing issues if you're autistic, for instance. And since any sensory processing differences mean this particular thing, that can be quite confusing for people. Yeah. And, you know, I relate to that like cafe experience. And I think what this is, is when we're in sensory overload, that is actually just our relationship with our nervous system, which all human beings have. So it is just more so that autistic people are much more likely to go into sensory overload because they experience their sensory world differently. But every human being when stressed will experience those same things that autistic people go into. So overwhelm, you know, shutdowns, they're not exclusive to autistic people. That that is just what happens when bodies undergo a lot of stress, which tends to happen on a sensory level with autistics more often but it's not exclusive. It is a human trait, actually. Yeah, I think it's it's often not as black and white as what people think, and it's always good to try and find that room in the middle, like that middle ground. Um, that's something that I try to do a lot in practice and my way of thinking about things is, yeah, like make room for complexity. Things aren't always simple. Working in disability and people's experiences of disability as well, like it's, it is not black and white. It is complex. It is gray. You know, make more room for that. I would also like to say I would love to see a copy of The Brain Forest in every school, every library, every clinic, because I think, yeah, we really need to have this resource out there in all of these different spaces. And I've recently heard, Sanja, that you've got a new book coming out as well. Tell us about that. I do. Um, You know, I would love to see the brain forest in every classroom and every clinic as well. I think it's just such a nice, gentle, inclusive way of talking about different types of brains. Um, But obviously I am very biased (laughs) with that. Um, Yeah, so my new book is coming out in May. It's called The Rainbow Brain. And it is really, I, I don't know, I... I'm in this beautiful stage of belonging because what has happened after the brain forest is so many neurodivergent children read it and announced, hey, I've got a little bit of everything. I have a rainbow brain. And I was like, that is wonderful. And it's something that I've personally struggled with is trying to understand my own 
I guess, functioning and how autism and ADHD kind of play out because it's not black and white. They're two kind of separate ideas. Autism says you need routine. ADHD says no routine. I do whatever I want. Um, You know, I follow the flow. And I guess trying to find that balance was so hard for me. You know, I love the rules and I'm trying to write down what are my rules? How do I understand my brain? And I thought, you know, how hard that would be for children who, if they were trying to understand more about autism or ADHD, often they do that in isolation. They understand autism or they understand ADHD and it's really hard to put the both of them together. And that's what the rainbow brain does. So it talks about autism and ADHD and then it talks about how it goes together if you don't mind can I read a little paragraph and like an excerpt yes please while Sonja's finding her excerpt I'd just love to say like I think this is such an important conversation to have because you know for so long autism and ADHD have been viewed as something really separate And, you know, we've had an episode in season three where we go through, like, what is it like to be autistic and to be an ADHDer and have both? And it is a unique experience. And it's something that, you know, wasn't really around before the DSM-5 in 2013, because previously you weren't allowed to diagnose both. But the emerging research is showing that quite a large proportion of people who are autistic or ADHD actually have traits of both. Um, and a lot of people meet full criteria for both as well. But there's still so much separateness that I see like in our professional organizations, like a lot of organizations are either for autism or ADHD. A lot of services are for autism or ADHD a lot of training is for autism or ADHD. Like it's still kept very separate and conceptualized very separately. And I I would like to see that change in the future and more, more acknowledgement of people who are both, people who have a rainbow brain. That's right. And, you know, coming from someone who actually does run trainings for, for autism and ADHD separately, I do so because it's important for us to know, I guess, both sides to know I feel like you know one part is dominant sometimes and the other kind of takes so I feel like they're two friends in my brain kind of taking turns so I've got the excerpt out I love to read it so imagine there's autism and ADHD and then it goes together to the rainbow brain so autism says I like to know what's coming up I feel great when things are the same I plan all the smallest details Doing this helps my anxiety to tame. And then you've got ADHD. I like things to be interesting and new. I feel bored when things are the same. (laughs) Details can matter or get tossed aside. Doing what I feel is my aim. And then I put them together saying, I can deal with change. Just don't surprise you, Spring. Given choice, control and time, I can do new things. So that's just a little page from the book, but it's just talking about how to integrate the two together to make sense of those rules. It's a nice, um, as you say, it's a nice way to describe how those two things come together to make something new. Because as both of you guys were saying uh, just before, it really is 
an individual, unique presentation when we've got autism and ADHD together. And rather than just seeing them as, yeah, these kind of two separate pieces, it's almost like the sum of the parts is greater than the individual parts themselves. It's kind of creates this entirely new entity. Um, so I'm really excited to read that book. Uh, I think it's it's that's going to be really helpful for lots of kids who resonate with both. Brains can get very noisy. I tend to go through phases in what's most helpful in quieting that noise and recentering. And at the moment, I've been gravitating towards music and soundscapes, slowly making my way through a huge library on the Calm app. And I've been trying to get better at having a more peaceful morning routine. And I've definitely found that the morning playlists really help a lot with that, actually. Yeah, I think most people think of meditation as the only way we can ground ourselves and quiet our brain, but sound and music are actually so helpful. What's really cool about the music and sound library on Calm is the variety. They've got playlists for times of the day and certain moods, soundscapes, and even alpha wave and bilateral stimulation tracks, which can be incredibly effective at helping you to emotionally regulate and getting your brain in a sleep-ready state. For sure. My favourites at the moment are the Disney soundscapes. So they've got things like An Evening in Jasmine's Garden, Merida's Mystical Scottish Forest, um, as well as other ones that you'd expect, like Rolling Thunderstorms and the like. The Calm app puts the tools that you need to feel better in your back pocket. If you go to calm.com forward slash neuro, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription. And new content is added every week. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash neuro. Go to calm.com slash neuro for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com forward slash neuro. So we focused thus far on your experiences as a psychologist and your work um, and your authorship. What we'd really love to move into now is a little bit more of a deeper exploration of your experiences as you. (laughs) So we hope that's okay. So our first question um, along these lines is, how have your identities as a BIPOC woman and coming from a migrant background intersected with your neurodivergent identity and experience? Really broad question, but I'd love to actually hear your interpretation of that question and your take on it. Such a juicy one, though. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess, you know, so being from Singapore, we're actually a collectivist culture. So I don't resonate with a lot of the experiences that I hear in Australia of people growing up feeling isolated because for me, my family belongs to a community and so we're constantly surrounded by people. (laughs) So even though I didn't have any best friends, I had family friends who might not have been friends but they were my social network and so I was constantly surrounded by people so that idea of isolation um, didn't quite fit for me simply because of the way that our community is structured. I guess, you know, when people think about masking, for me, the the most important thing 
the most important feature for me is my cultural masking. So why people mask is to blend in with the norm. And my skin colour makes me quite visibly different from the norm. It's not actually something that I can mask easily. And in order to culturally mask, I need to change other aspects of myself. So to fit in with that dominant culture. Something that I, I've noticed is that my accent is a form of cultural masking. Given that I didn't grow up here, I do have quite an Australian accent, or so I've been told. And that's really two-pronged, right? So my autism always wants me to socially camouflage, and I do take on the persona of whoever I'm speaking to. And culturally appearing more Australian increased my level of safety and assimilation. So when I first arrived in Melbourne, about, you know, in my first few years, there was an incident in Melbourne where people were setting Indian students on fire. Um, and it happened around the places that I walk. And so my need for assimilation and cultural masking just became stronger. I think when people talk about masking and unraveling the authentic self, it's also really important for us to think that for some of us, the mask has become our new authentic self. So I don't know how to speak in my original accent anymore unless prompted unless I'm given someone to mirror, um, and it's hard to go back. So when we unmask, we need to be confident of what's underneath that. And feeling safe enough to unmask as well, because every, you know, every strategy that we use as a way to um, fit in or assimilate is essentially a safety strategy, whether we're masking for neurodivergent purposes or masking for cultural purposes, it's safety, exactly as you articulated there. So, you know, I think the process of unmasking and identifying that authentic self is really dependent on whether or not you're now in a situation where you feel totally safe to do that because we can't actually, you know, to, to go back to OG psychology, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, <laughs> we can't actually allow ourselves the freedom to explore, you know, what is my authentic self when we feel like we're in physical danger or we feel like it's not a safe thing to do to kind of explore that. That's exactly right. Um, and I know that I've, I've had to move neighbourhoods in order to find that safety. I wanted to live in the country because, you know, that's my neurobiology. It's to have these open green spaces and to have fewer people that I encounter. But the cultural attitudes in those neighbourhoods weren't safe for me. And importantly, they weren't safe for my son. You know, there was that added layer of difficulty with social inclusion when people were rejecting him based on how he looked. I guess other things that I see in the dominant discourse that don't quite apply to me is that increased acceptance of non-compliance. I know there are many moments in my life where the rule of shut up and don't talk back <laughs> has served me really, really well. So I went on exchange to the United States and I underwent interrogation as a single brown female traveling traveling alone, you know, to the point of being questioned if I had bombs, to the point that I was questioned about my left-handedness because they were trying to find something that was wrong with me. Oh my and God. the fact that I was filling out forms with my left hand and with my left hand was picked up. That's terrible. 
Um, it is awful. And, you know, I still experience anxiety when I talk about that because, you know, coming across those systems of privilege where someone in authority who was, you know, a white male against a young brown female, I know those odds don't end well. So I just had to kind of joke about my left hand and as being something wrong with me and to accept whatever he was saying because it would not have ended well if I had. I think too, like that's a great example of unpacking privilege. That would be something a lot of white Australians would never experience. And they probably wouldn't even realize that that's something that actually happens to people and would be quite shocked. Yeah, I completely agree, Monique. I think being able to, for want of a better word, talk back um, is such a privilege. And so many uh, cultural minorities just don't have that privilege where it's like, okay, you can talk back and say what's on your mind and give your opinion, or you can be safe. They're your two choices. And I think it's so important for people who are in positions of privilege, where it is safe for us to talk back, that we are right? That we are calling out things like this and using that voice. Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, thank you so much for acknowledging that because that, again, increases safety when, you know, white people can acknowledge that that is a level of privilege that's not accorded to us. You know, something else that works differently for me being a migrant is that I don't access the NDIS. I cannot because if I do, that will be used as evidence against me to possibly kick me out of the country. Um, so I might need to undergo burnout in order to work to afford my support. So, you know, therapy, everyday like household support, um, they all have to come out of my private income. So the idea of working less might not apply as easily. Yeah, this is something I think like a lot of people don't have awareness of when I've worked with people or supervised people, like actually saying to them, hey, like, did you know that if you get, for example, an official diagnosis of autism, that that could affect your visa status? You know, that could affect your opportunities here in Australia um, if you're here on a working visa or a migrant um, and it'll affect your ability to like access support. A lot of people don't know those things um, and are quite shocked to find it out. But we've all seen it in the news where, you know, there've been different families that are living here in Australia and they've had a child be diagnosed with autism and then they've been deported. And then there's been fights to kind of go, hey, this is unfair. You know, is this really, I don't know, like the country that we want to be, I guess. So yeah, it's important that we talk about this more and there's more awareness about this and more action about this. Because, yeah, you know, like, Sanja, you've given back a lot to the community in Australia and through all your work and your labour. So I don't know. There's just this idea of it's not very reciprocal, I guess. You're here supporting, as an Australian, like our community and people in need here in Australia, but you're not getting that support back. I don't know. Like, as an autistic person myself, that doesn't really seem fair. As a human being, that yeah. doesn't seem fair. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess, you know, I could apply for citizenship as well, but just doing that would mean that I would have to give up my original citizenship. And it's just, it, it feels like losing that last cultural tie. 
that I'm just not ready to do yet. So instead I just have to walk with balance because that's the system that exists for people like us. And, you know, you're right, it's not fair, but sometimes it's, you know, that is where we are, that the world is unfair and it's good for us to recognise that and make change. But it's been very unfair for a long time. (laughs) I thought it was really interesting what you were saying earlier about coming from a collectivist culture um, versus an individualist culture, which uh, tends to be the dominant cultural type for lots of white Western countries. I'd love to hear a bit more about how you think that collectivist cultural background and neurodivergence overlaps compared to what you see, you know, in predominantly white communities where we've got an individualist culture and then neurodivergence. Yeah, I guess so, you know, the idea of my belonging was never questioned no matter what I did. I was, I belonged just simply by virtue of I was part of that group. So, you know, whether I spent my time by myself or reading a book or, you know, going in and out of reading and playing, my belonging was never questioned. Um, I was always invited back. I didn't have that experience of not getting invited because in order to not get invited you have to consider each individual person whereas we were always invited as a group. I'm a little bit curious too to ask you about within a different culture a more collectivist culture how is the idea of disability like how is that conceptualized? So I think there are usually two different responses to disability One is, you know, perhaps a family might feel ashamed of a child not being part of the norm because, you know, collectivism, we're all about the norm (laughs) and might disengage from their community and experience isolation as a result of that. Um, The other way that I've seen this work, and this is how disability works in my family. So I have a cousin who drowned and was pronounced brain dead but resuscitated and so has quite severe brain injury and has cerebral palsy. So his disability impacts and is quite visible. But what we do is include him as part of the family. And I suppose that is another way to go in that he does everything with us. So we're going to the zoo, he's at the zoo in our wheelchair. We go to the clubs, he's at the clubs in his wheelchair, you know, has a carer, but... <laughs> Um, and might choose a quieter space, but he's at the clubs too because we want to be included. So I guess, you know, two different types of responses that I've seen. Awesome. Thanks for explaining that. So coming back to your personal journey, when did you first realise that you were neurodivergent and what was that like for you? I guess as a child, I used to think that I had superpowers because I could feel things and hear things that nobody else could. So I convinced myself, you know, that was a superpower and it sparked very many beautiful imaginary worlds by myself. And I suppose that's my first kind of inkling that I was neurodivergent I couldn't I didn't have words for it at the time 
I just knew that something about me was different. And at university, when I was learning about the DSM-5, I saw the criteria for ADHD and it just clicked immediately. So I used to have severe back pain when I sat in musicals, which I love. And it made me just kind of writhe and move quite uncontrollably. I almost thought I'd epilepsy from the way I had to move my body after holding it in. And now I realise that's part of my ADHD. So ADHD was something that clicked instantly for all the words to my experience thus far. Autism, however, caught me on the back foot. (laughs) Um, It was something that was pointed out to me from, you know, my literal understanding of words, not understanding sarcasm, not really having friends, but I'd never felt alone my sensory style, my, I guess, challenges with change, those were all pointed out to me just because I had so radically accepted, I guess, myself that I didn't see that as part of autism. So where I've landed at is autism is more a personal relationship with my body, whereas ADHD is both a relationship with my body as well as the way that I interact in the world. I kind of feel a little bit similar to you, Sanja, because I didn't really feel alone or didn't feel like I didn't belong until high school. So when I was like a kid and in primary school, yeah, I don't know. I just sort of felt pretty good. And then high school, it was like, uh oh, this is like a whole new world. Like why, why is this, why is this social stuff not working for me anymore? I don't know. I think for me, it was, it was, It's not something I ever really thought about, like until probably university um, or like later on in life. So I wasn't really aware. I just sort of knew in high school that I said things differently or wasn't getting, I guess, I don't know, that social acceptance from others in terms of how I like presented or the things that I said in high school, whereas I felt people were more accepting in primary school. It sounds like, Monique, for you, the autism side of things, you experienced that, um, I guess, the most clearly in that kind of social world. But Sandra, for you, it's more that your internal processing of things or your, your kind of relationship with yourself. Would, would that be right? Yeah. So I guess, you know, on, on the social acceptance side of things, my ADHD, so think about in Asian culture, someone who's actually speaking up in class is actually seen as a leader. They are so grateful that someone is contributing to the discussion that I was frequently, you know, a class monitor, a prefect, a leader, a captain, and that gave me a very clear, defined social role to play, which I felt really confident in. (laughs) It's like, yes, I get to tell people what to do and boss people around. Perfect. (laughs) Sounds amazing. Sanja, can you tell us a little bit about how neurodivergence affects the different areas of your life? Yeah. So, you know, being neurodivergent actually helps me with work greatly because I get to combine my great passion with being able to make an income out of it. Um, It's what the Japanese call ikigai, which means your reason for being. So I'm currently experiencing that, which is amazing. So Ikigai is a collision of what the world needs, what you love, what you are good at, and what you can get paid for. (laughs) So, you know, that's something that I'm experiencing and that's something that's quite helpful. But it's something that I've had to tailor 
So I did learn, you know, with work on the work front that I do work best by myself. And I would only have been comfortable with this after recognising that I was autistic. So I did try to give back to the profession and supervise students and have students in my practice. But I found myself exhausted from the additional social input. And that took away from my purpose of what I was trying to create. So I'm in the middle of tailoring my workflow to be more ADHD friendly, to have more time blocks of just uninterrupted time that I can go really deeply into something. And then I need to also intentionally carve out exercise time. So because work is my passion, I can go really easily without moving or eating for a while. (laughs) Um, There are other things that I need to tailor my life to, to my neurodivergent flavour. I like to think of this as like Bertie Bott's every flavour beans. (laughs) My particular flavour is autism and ADHD. Maybe giftedness, but... Because I failed so badly in high school because of my ADHD, I'm not sure about that. I'm like, no, you don't understand my marks were all red. But working that one out. So, you know, there are many times that I go into sensory overload and I just need to step away because I can't function. Right? So I go non-speaking and this is where I've had to create really safe relationships to do that. Um, and safe spaces. So I'm lucky that my partner can sense and can just look at me and know where I'm at and help me get out of that situation. So try to contain an impending shutdown feels like trying to sit on a supernova. There is so much energy that I'm trying to contain and I just cannot. I need to shut down to reboot. Um, And I've actually ruined some relationships because of having to meet my own body sensory needs over and beyond the social norm of what is expected. So the good ones we've been able to work through, communicate and repair, but sometimes I do feel like I'm the bad guy um, for having to meet my needs. So kind of working on that. I think that's a really important point about, you know, having to prioritize your own needs and that sometimes leading to the dissolution of certain relationships or friendships. And that's sometimes just that really hard razor edge to walk where we're thinking, okay, how much can I subjugate my own needs for the sake of this relationship? And should I even do that versus, okay, actually, even though this is going to lead to a relationship breakdown, this is something that's really crucial for me. And I actually need to set a boundary here. I'd love to hear, Sanja, what your thoughts are on how to make that decision. I'm probably the worst person to ask. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I think, you know, one of my stresses is becoming known as that person. Right, that mm. person who just cuts people out because they don't understand why I do what I do and to know that or to trust that it doesn't come from a place of malice. So I've had people kind of misinterpret me needing to walk out because I am about to explode as being rude um, or, you know, don't you know how hard they work to organize this dinner for you okay trust me I know that um I I just physically cannot so I think walking that line 
you know, when it happens, it has to happen. I, there's no way through. But what I found is communicating with those key people are really important. So saying, you know, I want to be really clear that this is part of how my nervous system operates. It is by no means disrespect for you. And believe me when I say that. <laughs> and it does take a while for the other person to actually understand that because of how it looks. Um, so sometimes that is a process, but it is important for the people who are close to me and want to be close to me to continue to understand that so we can continue to communicate through different ways that it impacts and be like oh see there's that thing that's happening again but in a different context even neurotypical people need support with generalizing that role to a different context Mm, absolutely and you know Monique and I have an episode on friendships this season I can't remember at this point if that episode will be released before yours or afterwards but in that episode we talk about balancing and the crucial importance of both intention and impact and when you're in a relationship with someone it's about both people trying to bridge that and our listeners you can't see my my bridging gesture here <laughs> but you know bridging that gap where the other person is understanding the impact and then the other person is understanding the intention and I think the closer that you are with someone and the more you know someone the easier it is to understand you know if someone's done something that's upset you that the intention was not to do that and what's the reason behind why that person for instance had to walk out or had to do something that maybe you experienced as a bit jarring and you know we talk about this in terms of the idea of like raising kids, you know, rupture and repair. When there's a rupture in the relationship, the most important thing is the repair. There's always going to be ruptures. We're wanting to focus on what's the repair process. But I think often what we forget about as adults is that when we have long-term friendships or relationships, rupture and repair is part of those relationship types as well. So I don't think there's an easy answer to the question that I asked you. <laughs> but I think it's helpful for people to hear, yeah, other people's processes around that. Tell us what is your special interest or interests or current hyperfocus? And I'm going to take a wild guess here and probably say that at least one of them would be autism and ADHD slash neurodivergence. Like, am I right? Monique, I think this is your area of specialty as a psychologist is reading minds. <laughs> <laughs> I try. I try. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, 100% bang on, like it is very much about autism and ADHD. But I guess, you know, a bit more specifically, it's about furthering the neurodiversity affirming paradigm, making sure that affirming information gets out to everyone. So autism found me, you know, when I was overloaded, right? The term autism, I only came to know that as part of my identity when I was overloaded and burnt out and just not functioning well. <laughs> but, you know, coming out and being able to move out of that, still seeing autism as part of my identity and really being affirming as to 
you know, that relationship that I have with myself and love for everyone to be able to experience that and to know that this is kind of a, a roller coaster with our identity as to, you know, how we function each day. Right. So I want for parents to receive affirming information when their child first gets diagnosed. I want children to grow up with affirming information. I want schools to get behind and really understand what different neurotypes need in the classroom. So teachers are, you know, facing that challenge of having to teach different neurotypes without having that affirming, I guess, education on what these people actually need. So they're given kind of piecemeal things based on IEPs. But if we have a more broad, overarching piece of information to help teachers, I think our neurodivergent students would fare better in classrooms. Um, Somewhat ironically, another interest of mine is also autistic burnout. (laughs) Because we go into something and it's very easy to get consumed, you know, especially if we hide under the guise of, but that's my purpose. So I need to try to walk the walk and actually walk. (laughs) Um, And so I go out for walks in nature. I've moved houses to be closer to forests and just kind of really consciously coming back to nature and taking in that sensory experience of nature that's something that I guess I'm interested in at the moment if we had special effects I would definitely be pressing the applause button right now for yeah what you've talked about with your special interests like I love everything that you said yeah about the neurodiversity affirming movement and education like amazing so just imagine that we're all like slow clapping and then like you know it's getting faster and faster and then it's like (laughs) (laughs) to everyone listening I'm actually watching this take place and it is hilarious (laughs) (laughs) yeah So with everything that we've talked about today in mind, what would be your top tips for others? I hear the word tips, so I'm going to give two. (laughs) I'll take it. Um, I think if you're identifying as autistic, my top tip would be to look at a sensory profile. Um, You can look up the quadrants online or you can um, see an occupational therapist as well who will take you through the individual questions. If you're into reading, I highly recommend the book Living Sensationally by Winnie Dunn. So knowing exactly how I move through the world has helped me develop my identity, kind of learn and put words into my experience and help me create a more autistic-friendly life. My other tip, the thing that has been most helpful for me on this journey is looking up and engaging with community. So talking to more neurokin and surrounding myself with more people who also identify as autistic and ADHD can have multiple impacts, you know, multiple helpful impacts. So, for example, we're much more likely to have similar communication styles. And I know with my neurokin, we do use tone indicators. So there's less likelihood of being misinterpreted we lead similar lifestyles in that we're quite happy to see each other once every four or five months maybe (laughs) and that's fine 
um, but also more self-acceptance when we can see others modeling an authentic neurodivergent life. And the key thing for me to have witnessed in these communities is people leading an authentic neurodivergent life that is also unapologetic to say, hey, these are my needs and that's okay. Because I've grown up constantly apologising for things and seeing people go, no, here are my boundaries and living by that is very helpful modelling for me. Mm, It's like permission, right? It's like giving you the permission to actually do the things that you know intuitively are right for you. Um, But, yeah, sometimes that permission slip is actually really needed. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, something that, I don't know, for me sort of summarises up what you've been talking through today is three key things. Having connection to others, like to your neurokin, having a sense of belonging to community and really like living your purpose, like really feeling aligned with your purpose in life. And I think, you know, for any person out there, whether neurotypical or neurodivergent, if you bring those three ingredients in and have those three elements in your life, you're you're going to have that experience of well-being, which is amazing. So, yeah, I love that. To finish off, do you have a favourite moment or story that you would like to share with us and our listeners that shows how your brain works? So I guess one of my favourite stories is to tell the backstory of the brain forest. I actually wrote it in a moment of exasperation after yet another client was asking me for resources to share with their child's class and it goes against my values of, you know, making a disabled student stand up and tell everybody that they're disabled and (laughs) have to explain that to the class in order to promote inclusion. You know, that went against my values, so... I went, right, and then ADHD drove that train. I had a cancelled client and one and a lunch break, and I sat down and went, here we go, and I just typed out the entire, the entire book in that period, and then I surfaced for lunch, and my student said, what do you mean you're done? I was like, yeah, I'm done, um, and I sourced an author and an illustrator, and I went, off you go, and I didn't proofread it. Like, no, this is perfection. It does not need to be improved on. (laughs) Uh, So I suppose in that story is both my strength, you know, with my social justice drive, my ADHD hyper-focus, but also just not proofreading and going, (laughs) you know, bang on into being an author just because, you know, someone's kind of crossed crossed that line. (laughs) Oh, wow. I love that. I think too, to me, what that really speaks to is a trait that I often see in my neurodivergent friends, um, which is, oh, like there's this thing, there's this need that needs to be fulfilled. I'm just going to do it. And I think part of that is, you know, the neurodivergent way of thinking, which doesn't feel bound by unspoken kind of social rules. Like there's no oh, but you can't because you need to do this first and you need to be this. And there's all these reasons why you can't do this thing. And I love one of my favorite things about neurodivergent thinking is just like, oh, 
I didn't even consider any of the can'ts. I just did it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast, Sanja. It was amazing having you come and speak to us. And we loved hearing all about your book, The Brain Forest, and your new book, The Rainbow Brain. So, yeah, thank you for hanging out with us. What a pleasure on a Saturday morning. Thank you so much. And to anyone listening, thank you for listening to our experiences. It matters that you're listening to Neurodivergent Voices. So thanks. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us further, you can do so by subscribing to our Patreon. To become part of our Patreon community, you can buy us a coffee for $5 per month or a wine for $10 per month. All of our Patreon subscribers receive access to a backlog of exclusive content and to a monthly live Zoom hangout with us and our Patreon community. Our Zoom hangouts are a place to ask questions, chat about your experiences, and connect with other neurodivergent women. From this season onward, all Patreons will also receive basic episode transcripts released each week after our episode airs. Patreons shouting us to a monthly wine get all that plus one exclusive content post per month. We really appreciate your support as we aim to make quality mental health information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the handle The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website, ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.